Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 3rd, 2012. The recording features Kate Marvin, Aaron Ballou, Eileen Miles, and Monica Yoon. Hi, thank you all for coming. My name is Erin Ballou. I'm Kate Marvin. Do you want to go ahead? Um, we would really like to thank AWP for um, being so generous with us, and Christian Teresi in particular for helping us handle a myriad of details, some very annoying details, in fact. Um, they've been really wonderful to us. Um, we also need to thank um, Vita is a really... Is, Aaron and I are just a small part of Vita. There's a lot of people who work really hard for Vita, and we want to thank all the folks. Um, we have some fabulous interns, Jen Fitzgerald, Stephen Krauska, um, Holly Burdoff, and um, we have a terrific... Um, Olivia Johnson. Olivia Johnson. And we just have, we have a whole bunch of awesome people. Thank you, Adam Bowles. And a um, really good bartender. He's an excellent bartender, and also just and basically, if you're here, you care about what we do, and we really appreciate that. We're going to keep this brief because we know that you're not here for us. You're here for Eileen and Monica, and we want to thank them for giving us their time. You want to say something about the count? Oh, um, please visit our website. Um, we have a new count up. It's a 2011 count. We again review um, 14 venues. Um, the disparities are still pretty much the same, but if you click. Um, there's a, there's a link that you can, I actually learned how to create a hyperlink, which I'm really proud of. But, um, we have then, we have about 80 conversa- 80, um, articles and posts and blogs that have followed, charted the count. In fact, Eileen's essay, um, on being female is like, that's one of them. So, um, go ahead and explore and you can, we, you know, follow the conversation for yourselves and we would really like for you to join in. And we also have a blog that's going to debut on um, the 1st of April and that's going to be a forum in which, you know, we hope that everybody's interested in this whole matter will talk, chime in. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Monica Yoon. We don't have that much time so this is less of an introduction than Monica deserves. Um, but Monica Yoon is the author of two books, Barter and Ignatz, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, her prizes include a Library of Congress Fellowship, uh, Rockefeller, Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship, and she was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. So even though the count doesn't look that good, there are lots of amazing women writers, Monica being one of them, who are kicking ass and taking names. So please welcome Monica Yoon. I want to thank Kate and Aaron and everyone at Vita for inviting me here and everyone for being here on a very packed schedule uh, day. Um, as if it is not intimidating enough to be reading with one of my heroes, Eileen Miles, I also have to say that this is one of the biggest rooms I have ever been in in my life. I mean, like in Manhattan, this would be considered like a borough or something. So, uh, But anyways, um, I'm totally thrilled and very intimidated to be reading with Eileen, um, and, uh, but I will get started. So this first poem is um, it's based on kind of the death of a thousand cuts. I'm going to start with some new work and then move on to the book Ignatz. Um, and uh, kind of the death of a thousand cuts, the way it was administered as they would put the uh, person in what was called a, a wire jacket, which is basically like a chicken wire straight jacket. Uh, It's as morbid as it sounds. Um, Self-portrait in a wire jacket. To section off is to intensify, to deaden. Some surfaces cannot be salvaged. Leave them to lose function, to persist only as armature, holding in place those radiant squares of sensation, the body a dichotomy of flesh and blood. Wait, here, in the trellised garden you are becoming. Soon you'll know that the strictures have themselves become superfluous. But at that point, you'll also know that ungridded you could no longer survive. These next uh, few poems are part of a series I'm writing 
based on this 15th century French poem that I learned about in high school called Ballade des uh, Pendus, uh, B- Ballad of the Hanged Men by François Villon. And uh, Villon himself was a criminal and was, uh, I think, sentenced to death at at least one point in his life. And this poem, I think, stuck with me for all of these years because it's from the point of view of men who have been hanged after death. And they're hanging on the gallows, and uh, and they've been put there as kind of a lesson to the to the town, um, you know, uh, for their crimes. And there's this. So the poem is kind of shocking because it, you know, it talks about the process of their decomposition, but also contains this odd little refrain, which is this prayer for absolution, where they keep saying, "And please, God, absolve us," or "Pray to God to absolve us." Um, so this is. Um, these are some poems based on that idea. Uh, this first one is called uh, Interrogatoire de Pondu, which is uh, Interrogation of the Hanged Men. What is your face? A house of sorts. What is your foot? A chipped stone blade. What did you dream? A rain-washed road. What did it mean? It meant nothing. What have you learned? The sky forgives. What does it forgive? Each jet its wake. What do you want? A smile of sorts. No, what do you want? I want nothing. What's in your hand? A magpie quill. No, show me what's that in your hand. Uh, a palinode is a, is a poem that uh, retracts a statement made in a previous poem. Palinode de Pendu. A bird falls off a balcony, panicked, grasping fistfuls of air. I was wrong, please, I was wrong, please, I wanted nothing, please, I don't want. Um, uh, reprise, uh, reprise de Pendu. One. A blunted hook beneath the breastbone as if someone yanked out a strip of you. A great inrush of cold night and taillights and the avenue. Two. The nerves frenzy feeding on nothing. Three. I knew God to be absolute zero. All movement slowing, coming to a stop. Um, so I'm now going to turn to uh, my most recent book, Ignatz, um, in sort of an abrupt change of mood. Uh, so Ignatz is based on the Crazy Cat comics, which were written between 1914 and 1944. And Crazy Cat is really very simple. Uh, there's a cat named Crazy who is, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a cat named Crazy who is in love with a mouse named Ignatz, and Ignatz doesn't love Crazy. Ignatz likes to hit Crazy in the head with a brick, and since Crazy is crazy, uh, Crazy takes this as kind of a sign of affection, and so there's this wonderful... The, the important thing to understand is this is a daily comic strip for 30 years, and every day there's kind of cat-mouse brick, cat-mouse... I mean, it's it's... Amazing how long he manages to keep this very simple modular cycle going. That's kind of what inspired this. Um, but you really shouldn't take the cat and mouse thing too literally, or else you will become very confused. Ignatz. <laughs> Adam thinks I'm funny. I love Adam. Um, Ignatz invoked. A gauze bandage wraps the land and is unwound, stained orange with sulfates. A series of slaps molds a mountain. A fear uncoils itself, testing its long, cool limbs. A passing cloud seizes up like a carburetor, falls to earth, lies broken-backed, lidless in the scree. Acetylene torches now snug in their holsters, shotbacks trundled back behind the dawn. A mist becomes a murmur, becomes a moan deepening, dust-choked fissures in the rocks. O pity us, Ignatz. O come to us by moonlight. O arch your speckled body over the earth. Um, Ignatz Obad. Star maps of broken capillaries, 
Crown of infrared, song of drifting dune, the smooth, bold trees of his interior, blossoming, unblossoming. I spent six days almost touching you. Landscape with Ignatz. The rawhide thighs of the canyon straddling the knobbled blue spine of the sky. The bone-spurred heels of the canyon prodding the gaunt blue ribs of the sky. The sunburnt mouth of the canyon biting the swollen blue tongue of the sky. The hangnailed fingers of the canyon snagging the tangled blue hair of the sky. The blistered thumbs of the canyon tracing the blue-veined throat of the sky. The sleep-crusted lids of the canyon blink open your soft, your cerulean eye. Ignat's Oasis. When you have left me, the sky drains of color like the skin of a tightening fist. The sun commences its gold prowl, batting at tinsel streamers, on the electric fan. Crouching, I hide in the coolness I stole from the brass rods of your bed. The Wedding of Ignatz. Wait is the end of wanting, the simples gleaming in their rests. In the game called Hypothesis, an orange is gripped between the chin and shoulders, then is transferred with care and laughing to the chin and shoulder of the next in line. Then a flaming log is rolled into the river. Then a chalk circle is drawn around each plate. One day I walked to the window, robed in the loveliest robe of the year. One day I knelt down by the fountain, a crown of parsley, a crown of dill. One day my hands closed on the handles, a match tip was placed beneath my tongue. Listen to me. Someone has tricked you. There was never an apple. Ignatz Domesticus. Then one day she noticed the forest had begun to bleed into her waking life. There were curved metal plates on the trees to see around corners. She thought to brush her hand against his thigh. She thought to trace the seam of his jeans with her thumbnail. The supersaturated blues were beginning to pixelate around the edges to become a kind of grammar. Soot amassed in drifts in the corners of the room. She pressed her thumb into the hollow of his throat for a while and then let him go. couple more. Um, X as a function of distance from Ignatz. She opens the door. He is 12 inches away. Her fingers still splayed across the battened down brass latch of his sternum. She closes the door. He is eight feet away. Her palm skids down the banister, clings to the fluted globe of the finial, he is 28 feet away. She opens the door. The black air is fast flowing and cold. She closes the door. She clutches her thin intimacy tight under her chin and trips down the steps. He is 40 feet away. The stiff wind palpably stripping his scent from her hair, from the numb fingers she raises to her mouth. A cab pulls up. She opens the door. She bends the body, the body, Hitherto upright, she closes the door. The cracked brown vinyl, he is 90 feet away, biting the backs of her thighs, red blotches suffusing her cheeks. I'm sorry, please stop, she says. He is 400 feet away. Please stop the cab. She opens the door. The cab stops. She pushes a 20 through the slot. He is 700 feet away. She closes the door. The husk of something dry and light falls to the sidewalk, crumbles away. She opens the door. He is two feet away. She closes 
the door. Um, very short poem. Invisible Ignats. I would forget you were it not that unseen flutes keep whistling the curving phrases of your body. Winged Ignats. There are 27 feathers. There are 15 feathers on the right shoulder blade, 12 on the left, curving outwards, then streaming down the back. When I say feathers, I mean to say lines, undulating lines, more like hair than like feathers, since, unlike feathers, these lines do not convey a ruched or corrugated effect, as might be rendered by layered tiers of scallops or by a fingered edge. Instead of lines, I might more precisely have said cuts, discontinuous cuts dotted with blood clots. Flinches cluster at the clots like mayflies as one imagines the blade snagging in the skin where the cuts cross one another. Mayflies, too, are winged, but no one wants them unless to convey a sense of the ephemeral, a fan of surface, scr surface scratches that splay across the shoulders but do not break the skin, merely exhortatory, inviting one to read the underlying cuts as dimensional, on the verge of lifting out of the skin, unfurling above the shoulders, lines of blood fleshing themselves, then feathering themselves in strength and mass, rivaling the body muscle-bound that submitted to give them birth. And I'll end with uh, this. Uh, the book has four sections, and in comic strips, you can keep killing off your characters. So, um, so the death of Ignatz. Fallow lies Ignatz, his salt hands helpless, wicking moisture from the air. The death of Ignatz. The mesas sink to their knees and let the snickering dunes crawl over them. The death of Ignatz. Scratched in the plexi of the defunct jukebox, God, I was such a simple song. The death of Ignatz. The architect leapt from the bright bell tower and the sea slunk back to her cage. Thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce Eileen Miles, who is the author of numerous books, including uh, The Importance of Being Iceland, I love that title, um, Essays in Art, and the forthcoming Snowflake Different Streets. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, it's hard to know what to say about Eileen Miles. <laughs> she's, a, she's a force, she's a feeling, she's and she was fearless before it was cool to be fearless. So please welcome Eileen Miles. Um, thanks so much, Erin. This is such an honor, and it's such a big, scary room. And um, I'm a huge Monica fan, and your work is so great. And, and I didn't know the... Um, the Ignats, one of my, one of my best friends used to love this guy and who didn't love him and they were friends and they hung out and he called his friend Ignats. I was like, oh, no. So I get it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the pain, Monica. <laughs> so this, um, so this book that's not officially out is sort of out and it's called Snowflake and then it flips over and it's called Different Streets and, um, Wave did it, and I just have to say I totally want to thank them for arranging this incredible snowfall outside. And that's a press that knows how to publicize a book. I was just like, thank you. So it's sort of about two, it's, it's going two ways because it was sort of about two locations. I started the book in California, and, um, and the first poem is called Transitions, and it was at a time when I think a lot of things felt like they were changing, including that a lot of friends of mine were changing their gender. Um, so it's for... It's for Rocco. 
Sometimes I'm driving and I press the button to see who called and suddenly I'm taking pictures. Big dark ones. He said, it's not about where you sit to make a film, but I wasn't taking a picture, I was driving. It's black and there's all these lights, I'm strong, it's night and I've driven very far. I keep hearing the music of the weekend. He says, it's not about whether she and I resume, it's how it goes on with me. In my car so long ago, I loved someone who read me a poem on the phone about the car of the day. You know the one I'm driving and the fact that she left it on the phone and that was new? She said I was overreacting and that was too much. And we sent our messages in light. And act, she hated trees. I thought she's so young because I like nature now. And the, her trunk wrapped around me one day. He licks my arm, my boy, and driving home, I thought, if he dies, I will see his paw in the sky. I am seeing it now, and she's always home, going, Hurrah. And she said, I love our little meeting. I said, little? Don't denigrate my need to support, my need to say that you can. I'm glad I'm home. It's wide out there. We spoke about scaffolding, him fitting the frame to the eye. She's grown, I wanted to say. We laughed about Tang, and later on the toilet thought about Tango and Joan, El Tango Larkin. What's not technology? What's not seeing? And I'm to say, I hold the line. I hold the day. I watch the snowflake melting. This one's called writing. I was looking at the chandelier. Do you feel that way, she asked. I was driving through Los Angeles getting some help. I didn't know Pema Chodron was a girl. People... People sounded nuts. She had a sign, I'm hungry, I'm homeless, with a really pretty son. She hadn't asked for anything, but I gave her five, and that felt great. I thought, women are a bunch of idiots, but that's what I am. Are you one? I don't count on what I am, she said, and that chandelier is more light than anyone else. Snowflake. deep into my Ignatz moment. <laughs> like, really. There's no female in my position. There's no man. Wow, there's a raccoon on the tail of the plane, and there's no one seeing that now but me. And there's no one close enough right in here to see the further drawing stripes or buildings, the bricks of the world. I wonder what I'll say about Sadie, and I wonder if they are still living in that state, and if they hate me for moving her furniture out and putting it in storage. I walked past that restaurant where I was so mad I could have broke the glass. I'm the only one in the mood to remember this me living. Who threw a snowball against the glass and scared me in my seat so hot with rage? Why am I dry, freezing? I want to go home. I saw a rose in the heart of the year 2001, everything turning, rose, doghead, a wheel of love, but I was so mad. I locked it up and took the key and lived for that moment, snowflake. I wasn't there, not even me, when she put in the key and it wouldn't turn. This one's called Mitten, and it's a German Mitten, so it's not like a paw, it's like in the middle. It's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful here, but the thing is, it is beautiful. The peach sky is beautiful, and the black outlines of the branches and the leaves. Look, I even hesitate, but it doesn't matter if it all comes at once or breaks down slow. Catch this honking or the rumbling of the world. Last night in different streets, which I didn't bother to write, I made the point that the two places are connected and it's great where you are too. And boom, boom, rumble, all the places are connected, thus the endless beauty. And I have been beaten and suffered and you have too. Whoop, whoop, listen to that. Someone getting arrested, someone caught, someone's heart just stopped. Someone else holding the bag. I wrote something else about the day holding me and me holding you. A car passes like a big breath. It's what I've got, all these things, and I hand them to you like sex in the city. My ideal, our endless sound, our connection. Listen to all your voices now. This one's called Idiot Ho. <laughs> Can Vita rock that? <laughs> it's like, 
Everyone, I want a big apple, and hey, you don't live here anymore. I saw your email, I got your address. Hey, yellow shoes, my shirt is yellow too. Is it mad to say I like May so, so, so much at this exact moment, stupid, wet? It's a love poem. <laughs> June 5th. What is the nuisance or new thing about red angles, bars of light, and your new named green bank? I love you. Trumpets. The weather. For Alan, Monica, and Francis. It truly was a triple birthday party. For the most compelling birthday party I'd been to in a while, I bought three cards. Thinking that I heard a wet and sparkling sound, three pipes spurting water standing in the park quite near to the corner I meet you on, I go past. I don't know what tonight will deliver, the t-shirt you'll wear, an attachment I'm proud of not knowing you again, like that water. I've lived here for a while. What do you think I should say in these cards? I'm as excited about this moment as I was in the beginning. I keep seeing women in the street who resemble my mother, her wide Christian face. Is it an abomination to put that in a poem to my lover, not so much to you as with you in it, in the same world of the card, the train ride into Brooklyn, cars turning, skateboards splash hard, the plastic of the wrong side hitting the pavement? All you see are cops, cars and their vans prowling like a city full of meth, or a whole middle of a country like a split. Every woman your age, cute. Every woman my age, wounded and glisten. This one's called Smile. I was kind of obsessed with the, the fact that Charlie Chaplin wrote this song. It's so amazing, right? You know, the dun, 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 Academy Awards. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, like a genius like Charlie, Charlie Chaplin could write like a, a standard too, you know. Um, I want you guys to say, I know, I know, but you won't. <laughs> it's like, the human microphone, I know Eileen. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's just not as much fun without a good light and a sharp knife. I mean, leaning into the peach of it. People find the time to get theirs sharpened or use yours. That drip in the kitchen is like someone I know. Today's cold is like an affirmation of the purchase of yesterday's new shirt. I knew the cold would come sometime, but today I'm wearing that drip most of all. My half-made meal and even the space that surrounds the incredible possibility of hunger on and on like my favorite man, Frankenstein. The drip has tones, a relationship with the holding bowl that is only holding water, all these rhymes all the time. I used to think Mark Wahlberg was family. So was Tim, but close to his death, he told me he was adopted. Every time he smiled, he thought, Eileen is a fool, or that's what love looks like. If I woke and my master was horrified, I would go out into the world with this enormous hurt, and I have carried mine for so long, I now know it's, it's nothing special. It's just the fall and the sound of her sirens. It's the agony of being human, not a dog who dies maybe six times in the lives of her masters. Everyone's phony and made up. Everyone's a monster like me. Now I know everyone. This is part of a sequence of poems, um, only one of which I decided was good. But they all have two things in them, which is mountains and Diet Coke. And it was an outcome of living in Montana for a semester. To the mountains. When I look out at you, how absurd to think of Diet Coke killing me. I'm flying through the air, and there you are, white and dangerous. Who's kidding who? It's like, um, your house. I've walked past your childhood several times and friends of mine babysat your friends. 
The enormous calm this morning, kernels flowing through my clenched fist into an old-fashioned milk bottle. Exactly, I've constructed this time. I thought waves, wooden ones, no flames. As a good middle, I climb on top and then politely move over. I was sexually abused by an entire house. Every shake of the building was my lover. Me abandoning you for not noticing me, eating alone for years, in my family, not putting my foot down but not picking it up either. Suddenly strong in the new presumed position, wider than no more private than yes. Everyone's with men all of a sudden, men made like my time. In the morning, didn't choke the limits of the bottle, can leave me in satiety, not safety, something more native. Listen to me going all horny. Play, lover, play. My girlfriend's like, that poem makes me really uncomfortable. I'm like, it's not about you. It's one of the professional difficulties of being a poet. It's... Um, no California. The only time I may have had a kid was at 19, and if that kid also had a kid at 19, then at 38 I'd be a grandmother. And if that kid next year also had a kid, I'd be a great-grandmother. It's late, so I want to call someone in California, but I'm there. <laughs> is that an East Coast joke? It's just like a really... How are we doing? Cool. My box. This sounds so dirty. If, if, if you, if, especially, if, I don't know, is that generational? I think not, right? It was actually about a box of Tampax, which looked entire. I've gone through menopause, so it's like to live with somebody who uses Tampax is very surreal. You're like, what is that? You know, In terms of design, one box is colored orange, the one you want it always is, and sits in the bathroom of anyone's house because that's what she wants. It's choosing that wakes things up. I wondered how long all that I needed and encountered here would come like a wave. Not the shake, but the after effects. And this box did say there was a way to see this thing alone. July called it calculus. What is comes in boxes. What is not comes in waves. The dots between mountains surround us, and I say they are more marvelous than the sea. Way overhead, I like flying over them too, thinking that is home, these crazy bumps. When we drive into them tomorrow, it won't be bam. It means up swirling on the edge of a cup, and if you don't watch me like a hawk, I won't be scared. I want to be loved like a sunbeam, that is, it comes across the room or the ocean. You know the way I drive. I want to lift your fear like a bonnet and kiss your living face. Here, this is mine. Don't misunderstand me. Just, I'll say the poet thing. A couple more. I'm so there, says the cat. That's, that's it. <laughs> you had to wait a little longer. <laughs> Where is? <laughs> Thank you. Huh. Right? Have you? I've, I was at the gym. I was on the treadmill, and I suddenly saw that. I was like, "That's incredible." I'll say it again. I feel like Robert Creeley. I'm so there, says the cat. Isn't that incredible? Now, now I'm destroying. It. I'm digging a hole. You, know, you won't even be able to see me in a moment. I'm going. Okay, final poem. It's called. Glowing stick. I'm probably now and always was a real and complete idiot. One lies on its back by the bed, glowing stick, a wand to, to shave my head, to call, to paste my hybridity onto. What is it thus? A meaning of a meeting of a meeting? I say a kiss. The stripes are enormous, day and night, and we like the enormity of fucking love, the impossible words that leave us on our platforms in the sun, spinning. I want to be on a beach with you, too, a beach on Mars. There was a woman I claimed I would be dead with if I couldn't have her alive, and you are greater than either in this synapse. You float in going, what? The tiny stick goes orange and then not. You can't even see us because we're everything else and it's ours. And I love you in the blind spot of our changing ages. Thanks.
I don't know. It I seems like you guys should sit in the middle. Probably. Okay, we should okay. be in the middle. I think. All right, yeah, I do. As long as I get water. <laughs> and when we sit, we're going to think, oh, no, this is not. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> little squat people. Are we turned on? Are we? I don't know. Very personal Last question. Well, um, after your reading. Testing? <laughs> there we go. We're all good. Yeah? Hello. 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 Okay, Aaron's going to start off. Um, we, we just had a couple of questions um, for Monica and Eileen, and then we were going to, uh, what? Don't give me instructions on the stage. Such a man. <laughs> just kidding. That was a joke. Um, so we were just going to um, ask a couple of questions, and then hopefully we'll also have time for a little bit of Q and A. Um, given that the Vita's count just came out a few days ago, which I think you're both aware of, and that the numbers um, were not markedly different than what we did last year, um, we were wondering how you felt uh, about the idea of the count as a tool and a resource or just the notion of keeping track in this particular way um, oh I, th I think it's I think it's absolutely important and necessary because it makes it real it's sort of like we all have these vague feelings and we all have these feelings alone mm -hmm. is this working um, yeah, no, I, I just think it's incredibly important because what, what, why it's important is because when I get the Sunday New York Times and I'm alone or with one other person and I'm drinking coffee and I'm like, oh my God, is this like just the way the world is? And you just have this, and, and do you call somebody, do you email somebody, you just sit there with this weird misery that somehow things seem worse than ever. So I think the, the gift of the, is it Vida or Vida? It's Vida. Vida. Um, so many people, we've had this conversation because nobody said it out loud. We just know you from the internet. Yeah. yeah. So the Vita thing just is like kind of a beautiful conglomerate. Like it's just, it's just a fact. It's just a fact that we can all kind of celebrate slash despair together. Yeah. And I wish, you know, like I, I love the count. I think it's, I mean, it's so simple is what's so great about it. And you can kind of see it. But I think it needs to be, you know, it needs to start the questioning process. Like it needs to not be the answer. It needs to be the question. Like why, why is this still happening? I mean, what, what can be done to fix it? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, as opposed to this is your score and, uh, well, and you know, on that note, um, a lot of times when um, when journalists ask us about the count, they'll say, "Why do you think this is?" And they'll expect for us to have the answer, like, wow. "Like why?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm actually not an editor, so I don't really, I actually don't know. I, I want to know why." And so, I mean, how how do you think we can like start to figure out why? Any ideas? I mean, I think maybe just starting. I mean, you know, not putting people on the spot and saying like, "Why are your numbers so bad?" But really, just kind of getting together a conversation and saying, look, let's, let's talk about this like real people. I mean, this is an observable phenomenon. It happens. Uh, and do you think it's a problem? And if you think it's a problem, then what should be done about it? Yeah. There was a famous event in the 60s or 70s town hall with um, Norman, Norman Mailer and Jill Johnston. And, and, you know, it was a moment. And I feel like, why not get all those editors at a table mm -hmm. at town hall or some giant space like this and have them explain why they feel comfortable with these figures, why these are, you know, or, or, or and, and more, have them answer more uncomfortable questions, you know? Yeah. Because the idea of them answering the question with a question, you know, like is, is kind of like the rape victim experience yeah. where like, why did you dress like that? Yeah. You know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and ask you another question. Um, one of the things we were interested in is, um, and maybe I, I know some of my friends who are also teachers have this experience, that um, sometimes uh, people are a little uh, self-conscious maybe about declaring themselves you know, a feminist, uh, saying, yeah, I'm a writer and I'm a feminist, or I'm a feminist writer, whichever way you want to put it. Um, it seems pretty clear to me that you're willing to get up on stage as women, uh, you know, writers who happen to be women who are also feminists. Um, how do you, is there a moment that you can remember a period of time where you sort of came into that consciousness um, and, and decided that this was what was a, something that was really important for you? What was your, how, what was your coming of age story for getting to where you are? Both, both of you I think of as women who are very much known as being leaders in the feminist community. 
I think for me it was, you know, and I'm not only a poet, I'm a lawyer, and, uh, you know, law is not the least sexist profession in the world, especially if you're a trial lawyer, which I am. Uh, but, you know, I think I remember this when I was weirdly on the college debate team. I was such, you know, a geek, but, um, you know, and I noticed that the women were persistently scored much lower as speakers than the men were. I mean, like, just because people, you know, and, you know, and so I gave this speech and I said, well, if you were to, you know, close your eyes and think of the phrase, the greatest debater in the world, then what probably comes into your head is some faceless man in a suit with broad shoulders and a big dick, right? I mean, and, uh, you know, and you think, oh, there's a nice manly, you know, occupy the podium sort of person. You don't necessarily think of a woman as your first thing. And, you know, and I feel like those images, like, when I, I feel like women are much less likely to say to themselves, I'm going to write the great American novel because you think that a man like, you know, Saul Bellow or something is going to be the, you know, that faceless person writing the great American novel. And so that sort of, I think the, the way in which I, so, you know, when I decided to come out as a feminist or whatever, it was, you know, when you started to understand how gendered these expectations were and how, it really structures people's thinking without them thinking about it. I, I mean, I just feel as long as I can remember, it seemed like the the, the it was uneven. It was uneven in my family. There was an, um, there was support and concern and great interest about my brother's education and where he was going to go and what, you know, sky was the limit. I mean, he wasn't even such a great student, but he was expected to go to Harvard. You know, it was just kind of like, yay, Terry. You know, and yeah. and there was just a sense that I would do something or other and. You know, it was just, and, and, and I, and I remember every, every young aspiration I had when I shared it, it was instantly feminized. Yeah. You know, even, even being a kid, being good at art as a child, and I remember the, the nun saying, you know, to the boy who was good in class, you could be a commercial artist, and to me, I can remember, this was the biggest one, you can teach children art. <laughs> and I remember at the time, I mean, this, but this is a very special, one of the things that's probably great that all of us realize is that when we were kids, we did know we were kids, and people acted like we didn't know we were kids, yeah. you know? And because I, I remember thinking, I'm a kid now, why am I already teaching kids in the future? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to my whole life? And I knew it was about being a girl. Yeah. I was already gone, gone off helping, you know? Mm-hmm. So. But you were going to jump in. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, that reminds me of, uh, speaking of the debate team, it reminds me of my mother, like, you know, telling me to quit the debate team because it wasn't ladylike. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people didn't like women who argued, which I'm, I'm afraid I'm a disappointment to her. Uh. But for, for a lot of, um, and I, I started to say younger women, but I don't know that this is true, for a lot of women who are sort of in that moment of thinking about sort of coming out as a feminist or trying to take up more space or trying to feel um, brave enough to speak um, to some things that, that maybe they haven't been willing to speak to before. Um, what, what, have, what has been the, what have been the triumphs for you? What have been, what have been the outcomes? Maybe not always a triumph, but what, what, are, what are the outcomes of living sort of out loud as a feminist in your work? Was that a weird question? Yeah, that's a hard question. I, I, I would say just one day you start, I, I, one day I started to meet my audience and it was just incredible because I felt, you don't know what you're writing for, you know, and you're writing for, I mean, I felt like I was writing for my, my little poetry scene that was kind of in the East Village and it was more guy driven than female and, and, um, and I was just writing for years and it wasn't until, I don't know, I guess the 90s where suddenly I realized there were just a lot of people who had read me beyond my ken and that my work had had an effect and it was because in a way I felt like what I was doing a lot for a long time was being part of this male avant-garde and claiming it for female you know information and material and and you know and of course the form changed too just because my form is different from a male form you know but um but I didn't know where that was going and when I realized I had imported some of that style into a more feminist or even queer you know culture it was such a great feeling that i had been delivering a message far you know beyond me and i felt you know i felt like the work was bigger than i knew and that was very exciting because it's sort of like you really you can't almost can't do it unless you do what's in for me i get scared if i don't limit what i'm doing to the immediate you know i just feel like i i have to keep my mind on what i'm doing or i'll just i get scattered very easily 
So it felt local, but it wound up being more than that. So that's a really interesting thought, is that you, you, you feel comfortable saying that your form is inherently different than the sort of male avant-garde you were around, that you were... Where, oh, was that yeah. Something? Yeah, and I think my work's about that a lot. That right. the guys are always talking about the male outsider, you know? And I feel like women are sort of incarcerated in your outside, you know? No matter how outside you are, people are telling you you're in here and you're not alone, there's a group of you, and you're, you're standing for all women in this weird way, and whoever that guy thinks all women are, you know, and of course women have biases too towards yeah. us. Well, it's fun because it's, it's both, it, it's like being part of a, I mean, women are connected to each other in a way that men aren't for better or for worse. I mean, like you can sit there and you can be like Sarah Palin, you know, you just let the whole side down, right? And I don't feel like men feel that about other men, you know, just random men, um, and, uh, but, I think, you know, about the triumph question, that was interesting. I think, you know, I was really happy with the reception my last book got, I think partially because the book was so, you know, not important subject in its subject matter. I mean, it's 40... Did you say it was domestic? Well, it's 40, <laughs> it, it's 40 love poems about a cartoon mouse, you know? And I mean, it's not about world politics. And I felt like, um, you know, and submitting, the, like, and I felt like... When I initially submitted the manuscript, you know, my publisher passed on it, and uh, and it was just like, you know, and I felt like, okay, maybe I'm writing about something that's too too girly, too trivial, too, you know, like I should be writing about, you know, you know, the stuff I work on in real life, but um, but instead I felt like, you know, writing love poems to a cartoon mouse, and I, you know, I was very happy to just be able to go out with that, you know. What about you, Kate? What's your response to the challenges and triumphs? Um, I'm with Eileen. I think it's, it's sort of seeing, meeting people who have met your work who you have not met. And I think that's the miraculous thing about writing is that you can't really chart where your book has gone, where your work has gone. You have no idea who it's ended up with. And, and actually meeting people who, you know, who I might have met way back six or seven years or even a decade who are like, this was a real changing point for me because I felt more comfortable as a poet, or I read your stuff and I realized I could like write this way. Um, so that's kind of uh, just ridiculous. Makes me ridiculously happy. I don't. I don't know how much time we have left because I don't have a watch on. But do you think maybe we should open? Are there yeah. people who have questions out in the audience? Ooh, awkward Q and A pause. When do we end? I don't even have my watch. Is it four fifteen? Does it end? Somebody here must have a watch on. But when does it end? Does anybody know? 4.15. Yeah, so we have 20 minutes. That's great. Why don't, are there, do you guys have questions for Eileen or Monica or Kate? Go ahead. Or Aaron? What, if you don't mind standing up and projecting so everybody can hear. I have this idea um, that I can't talk Kate into yet of doing like a YouTube video with our friend Skip Horak, and it's going to be a fake AWP panel <laughs> called. Um, and Skip Horak, as a joke, he didn't mean it on purpose. He's he's a good friend. He said, um, "Let's call it Girl Writers: Colon Here to Stay." <laughs> and 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 the, and Skip and I, we came up with this idea that it would be. Like five guys, Bob Shikochis offered to be in this performance panel, which I thought was going to be awesome. And Skip and, I, I don't know, some other Jimmy people. Kimbrell. Jimmy Kimbrell, you know. And they were going to, um, uh, over the course of this, there would be one woman on the panel, and eventually she'd just be like, there, she'd have duct tape over her mouth and <laughs> pull the microphone away as she was talking. I don't know. That, don't you think that would be a good video? I just thought it was really funny. Yeah. Although I, I will say that AWP itself has been, I think, incredibly responsive to what they've been hearing over the last couple of years and been very much trying to participate in, in you know, creating um, a meaningful space for a lot of, not just Vita, but a lot of different 
um, organizations that have you know various feminist concerns. So I'm really pleased about that part. So I think I think there has been progress in that way. I was I was thinking about I, I think on the the Vita website it said something about how Grant. Uh, um, because it did an issue that was feminism, its figures looked better. And I think that's an example of where maybe women should have refused to have been in that issue. Yeah. Let men write the, the issue on feminism, because one of the things I think that's true is that this is, feminism is obviously not our issue. Yeah. It's the everybody's it's issue. It's, it's a different issue. way of saying gender. Yeah. Yes. You know? And, and that issue, I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look at it, but that issue is really kind of problematic in a lot of ways, because it's so funny, everybody's like, yay, Granta, you did it. And then it's just like, but there was that one weird issue. Did anyone see this? It has this strange, like, um, a man designed a cover, and it looks like a woman's magazine, but it's just sort of made up, up like a photo of a pro the prototypical hair, you know, and then it's sort of blank face, and then it has a bunch of numbers, and you can, on the back, there's um, a selection of, like, eyes or mouths, that you can apply, but they're all totally generic, like they're you know flawless in a way. And we were just like so very perplexed by the by the cover itself. And we mm -hmm. thought it was just like, what? What do you make of this? Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you should take a look at it. There are other questions. Go ahead. Thank you for the compliment first. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I've been really astonished at how well people can work together um, and how productive we've been and how um, I'm, I have a really hard time letting other people help me. I tend to be a control freak and I've really had to let go of that and I've come to count on a lot of people and, and it's just, it's been an amazing experience just watching ideas grow and not being the, the smartest person, letting someone else take the ball and run with it. I, I, my experience is also too having to, yeah, for some reason I sort of enjoy being uncomfortable. Those of you who know me know that's true. Um, but it has been uncomfortable to sort of face some of my own, uh, biases. Mm -hmm. You know, things that I wasn't even aware that I was thinking. Um, or thinking that all, all that, well, I also have this problem. I think everybody thinks the same thing I do. But, um, turns out, unfortunately, that's not true. Um, but, but it's, so it's been, it's been a, a real growth experience in terms of thinking about all the different ways that, um, you know, women are not one thing. You know, chicks don't think this. Right. Um, people, th we, we've had so, we've encountered so many different ways of thinking about these issues. And, you know, sometimes we've got our hands slapped a couple of times for making certain kinds of assumptions. And so it's just been, it's really opened my mind to a lot of different possibilities about thinking about what feminism means for lots and lots of different people. And I think that's been a really positive thing, although not always comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you, you know, if you're me and you grow up and you go to school with guys and, you know, you go to grad school with guys and you go to law school, you know, if you're me, you go to law school with guys and you think, okay, this is going to be fine. Like, you know, my guy friends are, you know, they're not sexist. They're, you know, nice, liberated men. We're working side by side. Everything's going to be fine. Like, there isn't a problem. And then, it's interesting because after about 10 years out, you know, you start to say, hey, wait a second, there is a problem, and why, why is this happening? In, you know, in the law world, you know, why are 95% of partners male? Uh, in, you know, in the literary world, why are so many of the power positions, the people who get to be the gatekeepers, mm -hmm. why are so many of them men? Um, and why is it that, you know, and, why does it, and what is it that we can do? But I think that the great advantage that we have is that we did you know, my generation, you know, you did grow up with guys working at the next desk to you who understand that, you know, this distributional consequence means that there's something going on that's, that's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I always, in my family, I, I always consider myself the person who really wanted to talk about the uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. But I think that I was very, um, that I actually, like, tamped down a lot of stuff and I refused to notice that there really was something very wrong and I was comfortable with that for a long time. And then when I had a kid, 
I was really, I just, I just, it just suddenly when I, be, I became really relegated to the world of women when I had a child, and there were some women who wanted to relegate me to that, other academics who wouldn't like acknowledge that a baby, and frankly, I like seemed to have um, disrespected me for choosing to have a child, and I was just like, well, what does this have to do with you? And so, um, and also, people were still like, then I was, thought that was going to be like writing all these mother poems, and that was really no one's business either. So, um, so then, and, and it was just, um, I, then I, I started to keep company with women, much more than I ever had. And the big, the, the big surprise for me is, and ha has been how much happier I've been, because, and how, how much more stimulating all the conversations are, and actually how much more fun I've had, because all the women on Vita are so funny. And we really, you know, we, I mean, it's just, it's really improved my life. I love you too. <laughs> I, you know, I just want to comment on what you said. Do we have time? No, we don't. Yeah. The thing you said about be, um, having a kid and then people having that assumption that yeah. you're just going to be, go off and be mommy, yeah. you know. And I think that's part of the way that people really think of women as empty. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, as a dyke, as soon as I came out, she's all lesbian, I mean, you know? Yeah. You know, or... or 100%. Any, yeah. aspect of my, <laughs> any aspect of my existence that I've acknowledged becomes the whole content. You know, I, I did some interview recently with C.A. Conrad, and I talked about this magazine that used to, you know, like, when I was approaching 50, there was a magazine that used to come in the mail. The government would see you approaching 50 and they would start sending you modern maturity you know and I was like no fucking way are they sending me modern maturity you know and when I got a little older I don't know what I just suddenly didn't think it was such a bad thing and by then it was called AARP and I but it wasn't even I wasn't even talking about age I was talking about George Bush and how he wound up on the cover of it and it was what a wonderful retirement this man who killed so many people is having and how you know how he's really relaxing into his you know, but it was a very little part of this, and I can't tell you how many people posted this fucking interview as Eileen Miles on modern maturity, Eileen Miles on AARP. It was just like, and I just felt like it's sort of like being a female. There's a way that people really are so much more comfortable putting a tag on you, so that they can kind of dismiss you as that kind of content. This is very true. And when um, one thing I really hate about daycare is they always just call you mommy. Like, they won't call me by my first name. They're like, Mommy, you need to bring more wipes. I'm like, I'm not Mommy. As a dog owner, I'm called Mommy. Yeah. I'm like, I, you're, you're Hank's Mommy? I'm and not I'm your like, Mommy. Fuck, I'm Hank's dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I mean, I actually, I, my name got switched up on a mailing list to Marvin Kate, and I wanted to see, I started to get all this mail. Like, um, like the, the New York Review of Books suddenly is like giving me a very you know, discounted subscription. I was like, well, I think Marvin Kate's going to subscribe and we'll just see what comes our way. And, um, and it's really, you know, then the New Yorker, then the London Review of Books, and like all the, the people who are sort of, you know, the worst offenders on our pies start soliciting Marvin Kate. And that's been well, a Well, curious... wasn't it the TLS that said that men... Yeah, well, I men like I, important I, I, men like important books. Right, like by <laughs> women don't read important books. That was an amazing Marvin, quote. Marvin is much more is much more serious. Actually, Marvin doesn't really like these publications. Marvin is a lot part. smarter than you, Kate. I know that. <laughs> um, are there other questions before we have to keep going? Any last thoughts? Go ahead. Oh, I, I believe it was Peter Stothard in the um, oh, Times Literary yeah. Supplement. Um, who, when he saw the response to the initial count, I'm not gossiping because he's on record for this. You can this. actually see it on our website. It's yeah, actually, you can see it on the um, website. On the current pies, and um, there's a few quotes from him on um, the Times Literary Supplement pies. And basically, he said that they weren't surprised by this. Then they they acknowledged that women were made up. Of, they were a huge readership. They said we review the best, and women and women don't tend to read those books. Women don't like to read important books. Yeah. <laughs> And he was okay with that, apparently. He's walked it back a little bit this year. He says he's going to start paying attention to this more, so yeah. that's good. Um, what they time can is say it that, now? though, we, and then just forget still, that we still have, it. We still have seven minutes. Anything else? Let's make the most of it. Go ahead.
Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a feminist fantasy. What's happening right now? Um, and I don't. I realize. I think you know, Aaron. We have a billion ideas what we could do. We'd like to have an imprint. We'd like to have a conference. Um, we're gonna. Uh, we're rolling out our blog, Her Kind, which I told you about. Where we're hoping that, that there'll be a lot of traffic there. I'm, my fantasy is that all these women who write in different genres and are from quote unquote different aesthetic camps and who feel like maybe they, that something else is going on over in that aesthetic camp or that, like everything's mm -hmm. okay in playwriting. Oh no, it isn't. Right, right, right. Everything's okay in fiction. Oh no, it isn't. Um, I always thought like the avant garde poets, like that everything was like they were having a good time of it. Well, no. No. And so if we can just sort of, you know, once you realize that. You know, this is something that affects all of us in different ways, yes, but actually in not so different ways. Once we can sort of have that conversation, you know, and across class, across ethnicity, across sexual orientation, across, um, you know, whether you're an academic or you're not, like all these things, that's, that's really like my fantasy because I think it's going to be an amazing conversation. I think that's what's going to change things. And I think that once we start, you know, these venues we're looking at, I don't, you know, I was like, I'm, I don't, I'm not their audience. That was the big realization. Right. It was like, I, why was I thinking that I should be reading this and I'd be interested in this? So I think creating things that, that we're interested in is, is part of it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I often think about a publication like, a, I mean, one of the reasons, I've had this conversation a lot lately, one of the reasons people aspire so desperately to have poems in The New Yorker is because it's a mixed magazine. It's not just a poetry magazine. You know, as a poet, after publishing for years, I'm like, ugh. I don't want to be in a poetry magazine. You know, I want to be in a magazine where people read about politics and look at photographs and hear about culture and look at a lot of things and there's some poems in there, you know? So, so, it, but, 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 I want that magazine to not necessarily be called female. Like, I'd like there to be magazines that are dominated by women that aren't called women's magazines. Mm -hmm. So that there, there are some, a few men in there. You just happen to notice that this magazine is mostly filled with female content or is just so open to female content that you're just simply in another world in this kind of paradigm shift so that we don't have to call it Ms. this time. You know, that there just yeah. be a multiple of magazines that, that are implicitly feminist. I, I, my fantasy is that I'm, a, I'm the director of a very large creative writing program in Florida and, and one of the things that gives me hope is that a shout out, a giggle, something? Um, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is, is honestly the, the young women who come through my program um, and hoping that their experience um, as women in their, uh, a lot of women in their 20s and maybe very early 30s are, um, it gives me hope and I want to encourage it even more that they are not as willing to put up with the sort of shenanigans that I put up with um, and that they wouldn't, they won't have the fear that I had to speak when I was younger um, because I was afraid that I could, I, barely, I, I barely got my claws into the sort of poetry conversation. I so desperately wanted to be part of the world and the art and I was afraid if I were to say anything that, you know, it's that special woman status that Adrienne Rich talks about um, in When We the Dead Awaken that I, I, just, I just felt like I was so afraid that they weren't going to let me participate that I didn't speak or at least I think I didn't. Apparently I wasn't as good at keeping it to myself as I thought I was. But, but I, I really feel good about my women students who don't seem as fearful. I mean, I think that's a, that's a real sign of progress, um, that we don't have to have this sort of special woman, you know, one woman per panel, one woman per, you know, like we'll throw one in at the end of the Norton anthology or whatever. I think that, I think it's, I think it really has gotten a lot better, and the women that I'm teaching make me feel really positive about the future. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that that I also feel um, I, I, I'm we, I'm happy with my male students too, and their ability to acknowledge these things. I mean, we have our first male intern come on board and has worked his ass off for us at the AWP, and um, I think it's really significant that it's important that men are part of the conversation. Absolutely, that it's not just like women against men because it's really not. There's plenty of women who, um, you know, are something. Are sexist. Me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go. Anything else? Um, next time we did something like this, it would be fun to work really hard to try and get the audience to be 50% male. Yeah.
Yeah. You know, because this is not our conversation alone, you know? And maybe our responsibility as women um, and men is to make sure that when we go to something like this, we have at least one or two guys with us. Yeah. Not for protection. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, well, thank you all for coming. Um, Eileen... I think Eileen and Monica are quite happy to sign books in the back and uh, come up and say hello. And thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.